0: And in your Bible today, the book of John, chapter number 14, John's gospel, chapter number 14, and if you will look there, we'll read that passage here in just a moment. John chapter 14. All right, I think everybody probably is getting there. Will you stand with me as we read from God's Word? This is a passage you hear at funerals, but it really is not just a funeral passage, it's a great passage on the Lord's return. John chapter 14 and verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now look at those words and absorb them for a moment. Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you, speaking to his disciples. If I go and prepare that place for you, underline these words when you sit down in your Bible I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wonderful words. You may be seated. Thank you. In both services today, I'm speaking to you about events and what we call contemporary theology. Now, that's a term lay people don't use. That's not your world. In the world of preachers, though, and theologians and seminarians and so on, it is a very common term, contemporary theology. What is contemporary theology? We mean by that the trends uh, that are happening in the world of theology because th- things there, though they ought to be very stable, come and they go. And there are certain trends that are always happening in the world of theology. And so today, contemporary theology today is moving away from a literal belief in the rapture and what we call the premillennial position, and I'll describe that in a moment. So, in other words, our view of the last days, the, 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 the end-of-time events, the views of theologians across the world right now, in many cases, have changed. And I wanted this morning to take you back to the Bible and show you the basis for what we believe here in our church about this. Because the rapture and the premillennial return of Christ is under attack today in many places. And it's a sad thing, because look at the first phrase of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. One of the most comforting And encouraging and hopeful things that any Christian can have is the hope of the Lord's return. It's gotten 20 centuries of people through difficult times in their lives, even though it hasn't occurred yet. It still is what the Bible refers to as that blessed hope. And so this morning, my subject is the attack on the rapture. The attack on the rapture. How could anyone attack the rapture? Well, let's look at that. And let me tell you, first of all, what the rapture is, and let me describe it for you. When I talk about the rapture, I've given you a very specific definition here. It is a singular event when Christ returns in the air from heaven with the souls of all the saints who have died in the past. He first resurrects their bodies, the bodies of those people whose souls are with Him, He resurrects those bodies, and then he catches the living, all the saints, all the believers, all the Christians who are on the earth, who are alive and remain, he catches them up to be with him in heaven. And uh, it's the most spectacular, sensational event that will ever occur in all of human history, the event when Christ returns in the air with the souls of dead believers, resurrects their bodies first and then raptures. And the word rapture means to take up, to snatch up, to catch away. It comes from a Latin term, and uh, we'll look at it a little further here in another reference in a moment. But to take away all of the people on the earth. After the rapture, five minutes after the rapture occurs, and it's an instantaneous event, Five minutes after the rapture occurs, listen to me, there will not be one saved person left on planet Earth. Every Christian, whether they were dead previously or alive previous to that, every single one of them will be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. There will not be one Christian, one believer left upon planet Earth. When does this occur? Well, our belief is that it occurs before the tribulation period starts. In fact, it is the trigger event that begins the tribulation, or it is one of those trigger events, I should say. So if it occurs the rapture occurs before the tribulation, the term we use is we believe in a pre-trib we usually shorten it to that pre-tribulation, a pre-trib rapture. That's our doctrinal position here. It has been the doctrinal position of about 99 and a half percent of all evangelical Christians now down through the ages. We, are, we believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Now get that because it's very important later on here. Then secondly, at least seven years later, maybe more than that, but a minimum of seven years later, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth. He will return to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. And he will set up his kingdom, the millennium. And so the millennium is a thousand-year period of time when Christ Jesus himself will rule from Jerusalem over the nations of the earth. Millennium is the Latin word for 1,000, so it's a 1,000-year reign of Christ. So, we believe that Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, and then He sets up the millennial kingdom, so we believe His return is pre-millennial. So, let's put this together, what I've been saying here in the introduction. We believe in a pre-trib, pre-millennial return of Christ to the earth. He comes before the tribulation. The tribulation occurs for seven years, and then he comes, he returns in the second coming. He returns to set up his kingdom. And this was the view of the church. All Christians believed this for about three centuries. And then there was a theologian, in many ways a wonderful, wonderful man, but on this he really was was wrong according to our view. His name was Augustine. You've heard of him. And Augustine, instead of, instead of reading the Scriptures literally and taking them at face value, Augustine began to spiritualize the text, we call it, spiritualize. In other words, he made almost everything symbolic. It stood for something else. And in doing that, he injected his own opinions into the uh in, into the interpretation of the scriptures. And the system that he invented, we call it amillennialism. He said the millennium was not going to be a literal one thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth, that the millennium was was a spiritual thing. It was in the hearts of people, that the kingdom of God was spiritual, and that the kingdom of God would not ever occur upon the earth. That We were in the millennium already And he said that about 300 and some years ago So about 2,000 years ago he wrote that Which means that we've been in an extended millennium Because he spiritualized the word millennium Didn't mean a literal 1,000 years And he said someday Christ will come back But it's very indefinite Very spiritualized instead of literal Our view is pretty literal Now our premillennial Pre trib, premillennial position is under attack today. You probably wouldn't know that as laypeople. But there's a a drift occurring where evangelicals believe that almost unanimously, and now there are people questioning that. They're saying, well, it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't returned yet. And so they're beginning to question the very idea of a pre trib, premillennial position. Uh, end time scenario here I saw this not too long ago just a few weeks ago I was watching a a program on a Christian channel and I won't call his name because I've respected him up until now on many things but I disagreed vehemently with him on this the well-known Christian author and host of that program was interviewing a guest just two men sitting at a desk and in an interview going on. And as he interviewed the, de- the guest, the guest said that those who believe in the rapture and in a premillennial approach, he called that a doctrine of Satan. And I thought, my soul. And then he continued. He mocked it. He said, those people that believe that stuff, they're into a They believe in a rescue rapture. He said they have an escapist mentality. I made notes. I wrote them down here. It's exactly what he said. I'm quoting his words. Well, the host piled on that, and the host was highly critical of us. He said that people who believe in the rapture and the the premillennial return of the Lord, that they are not culturally engaged was his term that they're not involved in the real world. They just want to get out of here. Things are so bad, and the Bible says they're going to get worse and worse. And so all the people who believe this end-time stuff, they're just not culturally engaged. They're not doing anything to help out. And uh, they went on and on, attacking literally the rapture. Now, what is behind that? What could possibly motivate people to, to do that? Well, behind that teaching is a belief Another big word, post-millennialism, that Christ is going to come after the millennium, that the second coming is at the end of the millennium. And he's going to bring in the kingdom is the, the term that they use. And that if we as the church and as Christians, we're to work to try to improve society, that's our main goal, that if we can create a more just and a more righteous society, if we will be more social justice oriented more today we call it more woke. if we will just do that, then that we can improve the world and when the world gets to a certain state, if we'll Christianize education and Christianize government and christianize we'll have our influence in all these different areas, business and the corporate world and 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 so on. if every part of life we just infiltrated and and we begin to Christian that world. Then one day Christ will come back and uh, he will take over at that point, post-millennialism. It's called kingdom now theology. It too says we're in the millennium. And when I read my description in the Bible in Revelation 20 of the millennium, (laughs) it doesn't sound to me like we're in the millennium right now. That's supposed to be a time of peace and prosperity and and people are getting along and there's uh, justice raining upon the earth. I don't know what planet these guys are on, but boy, that's not the one I'm living in right now, huh? And so, uh, they also say God is through with Israel. And we call that replacement theology, that the promises that God made to the Israel and to the Jews are for us today. And that's how they arrive at some of their conclusions. So, Here's the bottom line, and I'm preaching a long time, but I want you to really understand this because these events are ultimately going to touch you. This changes, if you believe this view, this changes the mission of the church from fulfilling the Great Commission, that's what we try to do here, to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize, to reach lost people for Christ, whether here or on the mission field. It changes our mission from that and then making disciples of those converts. Our mission has changed from the Great Commission to a mission of social justice, to making the world a better place. And can we do that? And is that what the Bible teaches? Now, when you study prophecy, understand that the study of prophecy is the most challenging thing I've ever done because a little smattering of it is over here and a little bit over here. I don't know why the Lord didn't choose to do that. The only place that he just wrote down in a chronology is in the book of Revelation. And the rest of it, he just kind of, it's, it's here and there, and you have to put it together, and it makes it very difficult, but it's, it's possible. It's not impossible. You just have to study. You have to be very, very judicious in your studying. And we study the Bible taking it for its literal meaning, not its symbolic meaning, because anybody can make that up. We never isolate a text. We focus on the context of where something appears and the circumstances of it and what was behind it and who is it and where did it happen and all that kind of thing. And so when we look at our Bibles, we've got to look at them very, very carefully when we're talking about prophecy and end-time thinking and the rapture and the Lord's return. And I've picked out the three passages this morning in your whole Bible, three passages. If you can nail them down, I think you'll have a clear and even a simple view of what it means about the rapture and the Lord's return. So you're ready to go with me? Okay, John chapter 14, verse number one, and it begins here with a word of comfort. Let your, not your heart be troubled. And we need to hear that often, don't we? And then he informs us, Jesus himself, the speaker, he informs us that he is going to leave. Now, the context here is this is the night before his crucifixion. And he's saying, I'm going to leave you guys. He's speaking to the, to the apostles before him. I'm going to leave you guys. And I'm going to my father's house. He doesn't call it heaven. He calls it his father's house. He said, I'm going there, and there's many mansions there. And if it weren't true, he emphasizes, he's telling them the truth. I would have told you, I'm not making this up. This is a fact. I go to prepare a place for you. And he's been doing that now for how long? 2,000 years. If I go and I prepare that place for you, I'm going to make you a promise I am going to come again and receive you unto myself and then throughout all of eternity where I am, you will be also. My, what a glorious, glorious promise. I don't know how many hundreds of times now I've stood out there in a graveyard somewhere and read these words to some people who tears were streaming down their face because their loved one was in that box over that hole in the ground and they knew they would not see them again. But I could tell them with assurance and authority of Jesus Christ himself that I'm going away and prepare a place and if I go, I will come again and I will take you to myself and throughout eternity, we're going to be together. Isn't that wonderful? That's why they call it the blessed hope. The blessed hope. It's blessed, isn't it? Sure it is. Now, I want you to turn to the second one of these great passages. is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I also usually read this out there at that burial ceremony if I'm presiding over the burial of a Christian. And I go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we will begin in verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be in the dark. Concerning those who are asleep, circle the word asleep in your Bible. It has the idea of dead. The Bible word for the for the Christian who is deceased is asleep. We're asleep. He said, because I don't want you to sorrow. See, every, every, each of these passages is comforting. That you sorrow not as people who have no hope. Have you ever seen the burial in a pagan land, maybe on television, and someone that there's a crowd of people standing around a grave or a corpse, and they're wailing and sometimes throwing themselves on the ground. It is absolutely a picture of despair and hopelessness. It is so sad. Your heart aches for them. And then there's the Christian. Yes, our heart breaks. Even Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. But in spite of the tears on his face, there was hope. And when we stand at the grave of our loved one, our hearts may be grieving, but there's hope that you sorrow not as those who have no hope. He didn't say don't sorrow, but your sorrow is different. It's a sorrow mingled with hope. And then we continue here. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, hold on. That's the gospel, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again, according to the Scriptures, on the third day. If we believe that, then those who sleep in Jesus, that's believers, believers only, those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Paul says, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, in other words, all the people who are alive at the time of the rapture shall not prevent, that's the old King James word meaning precede or go before, that all of us who are on the earth and are alive and remain, when the Lord comes in the rapture, we will not precede them who are asleep. We're not going to go before them. They have six feet further to go. And so they're going to rise first, and then we're not going to precede them. And then here's the rapture. The key verse in the Bible for the rapture is right here. The Lord himself, Jesus Christ, shall descend from heaven, accompanied with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with trumpets sounding, the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. But notice, it's not all the dead. It's the dead believers. Then we which are alive and remain, we will be caught up. Now, if you haven't done so in the past, circle those two words, caught up, and out there in the margin of your Bible, write rapture. The word rapture come is the Latin form of that Greek word caught up. And it means simply to catch up, to snatch away, to raise up. And we who, he says, the Lord will descend, there'll be a sound of of the trumpet, there'll be the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who remain on the earth alive will be raptured together with them in the clouds. We'll meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, ever with the Lord throughout eternity. And he began with comfort, and he ends with comfort. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so over and over, this rapture thing is for our comfort. Then it's not going to be tens of thousands of years before we're raised. It's It's an event that we can even anticipate in every generation. Now, we go down to another passage I want you to look to, and that's back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. These three passages are the essence of our rapture theology, our rapture belief, if you will. And so 1 Corinthians 15 and 51, 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. What is a mystery? It's not a novel that you buy, a non-fictional book, or a story of something. The mystery he refers to here, and and you might want to note this, there's about seven or eight mysteries in the New Testament. And a mystery is a truth, a doctrine, a belief that was not revealed in the Old Testament. That now for the first time it's being introduced into the Scripture. So he says, I want to show you something the Old Testament didn't tell you about. We shall not all sleep. All the Christians are not going to die. There's going to be a generation who don't die. But whether we die or not, we shall all be changed. And the word changed has the idea of a total transformation. We're going to be transformed. We're going to become something that we're not now. We're going to be changed into a new form, if you will. We will all be changed. It's going to happen instantaneously in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There's the trumpet sound again. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible. Now, wait a minute. Big word, incorruptible. Something that is corruptible means it can corrupt. Incorruptible, it can't corrupt. Like silver or gold or even more than that. And we shall be changed. There's that we should be transformed is the word literally in your, in your Greek. We'll be in a different form. Actually, what that's teaching is the glorification of the, of the body, that we will be glorified. We will have a new body. And the best illustration of it is Jesus Christ himself. Remember, after the resurrection, he was in a different body. He could come and go and appear and not appear and he had a glorified body. Okay, that's what this is talking about. Now, look at this, verse 55, this corruptible will put on incorruption, verse 53, I'm sorry, this corruptible will put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Does the Bible teach the immortality of the soul? Yes, where? Right here. We will be changed from mortal beings, mortal having to do with death, people who die, with immortality we'll put on immortality, we'll never die again. And so when this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death will be swallowed up, conquered in victory, and of course, through the merits of our Lord. Turn one more time, Titus. Go over to the right, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. And I want to show you one verse that has both the rapture and the second coming in the very same verse. The rapture and the second coming in the same verse. Verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope. That's the rapture. The blessed hope called throughout the Bible. The coming of Christ in the air, catching up the saints and resurrecting the dead saints. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And that's the second coming. The blessed hope is the rapture. The glorious appearing is the second coming of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. One verse with both events in it. Now, so many people today never separate those events. And they just talk about the second coming. Now, Listen to me, hear me, look up here, don't miss this. The rapture and the second coming are two separate events separated by at least seven years, maybe more than that. We don't know for sure. We don't know how long it will be before the Lord returns after the tribulation. There might be some period, we don't know. Now listen just, just look up here and listen. I'm gonna give you 15 ways. I did a lot of study on this. Fifteen ways the rapture and the second coming are different. And if you, you get hold of that, it's important. Number one, in the rapture, Christ comes in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we just read it. In the second coming, Christ comes all the way to the earth, Zechariah 14 and 4. Number two, the rapture is secret. Only believers will see him. The second coming is public. Every eye shall see him. Number three, in the rapture, believers are caught up and changed. In the second coming, nobody is caught up and nobody's changed. Number four, in the rapture, believers are taken to the Father's house. In the second coming, nobody's taken to the Father's house. Everybody stays on earth. Number five, the rapture is imminent It can happen at any time. It could happen right now before I say amen here today. It may not happen for another hundred years. We don't know. I don't think it's going to be that long, but that's Bill Monroe's opinion. That's not the Scripture. It can happen at any time. It's imminent. The second coming can only happen after certain prophesied events. For example, the second coming couldn't have happened until Israel was back in the land. There's too many prophecies having to do with that. Number six, there are no signs of the rapture. There are many signs of the second coming. Number seven, only believers participate in the rapture. All mankind participates in the second coming. Number eight, at the rapture, there will be a judgment to give rewards to the saints in heaven, called the judgment seat of Christ. At the second coming, there's the great white throne where people are sentenced to eternal punishment in the lake of fire along with Satan. Number nine, at the rapture, there's no kingdom being formed. At the second coming, Christ sets up his kingdom. At the rapture, number 10, it occurs before the day of wrath. The second coming, according to Matthew 24 and 49, comes immediately after the tribulation of those days. Number 12, Revelation 19, the rapture, the people there will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the second coming, the bride returns with him, but there's no mention of that supper. They return to the battle of Armageddon, literally. Number 13, the rapture is after the tribulation begins, and the second coming is after the millennium has ended or begins and number 14 the rapture Christ comes for his saints 1st Thessalonians 4 the second coming Christ comes with his saints revelation 19 number 15 be ready you know not the hour is his word about the rapture the second coming he comes And it's in the middle of the battle of Armageddon. He ends it. You see, if you'll compare these carefully and look at all the Scriptures in context, there are at least 15 ways that I've discovered personally in which the rapture and the second coming are different events. Don't confuse them. That's history's biggest event, isn't it? It's a day like no other will ever be, the day of the rapture a day that begun like every other day and ended like no other day. Millions will be missing. The nations will be in in upheaval. There'll be total chaos in the business community, the military, education, government, even in the churches. Total chaos. Nothing will upset culture and society and Governing and stability like the rapture will do. Now, my second and last point is that what's the purpose of it? So, why is the Lord coming? What is the purpose of the rapture? It's important you know. And I'm going to take you to the book of Revelation and we're going to go all the way through it. <laughs> Okay, buckle your seatbelt here. We're going to be here a while, huh? Not really. I'm going I'm to give you a quick trip. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Revelation, it mentions the church 19 times. The church is everywhere here. The church, I'm referring to that as God's people uh, all across the world, the saints. And... Uh, In Revelation chapter 1, you see Jesus, and he's walking in the midst of the churches. And then in chapter 2 and 3, there's his word to seven churches who represent all the churches of of all this period of time. Now look in chapter 4 and verse 1. Everything changes here. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, an opening in heaven. And the first voice which I heard it was like a trumpet there. We're back to the trumpets talking with me. And it said, come up here, and I'm going to show you the things which must be hereafter. And so right here, right in the margin of your Bible beside that verse, there's the rapture. There's Revelation's account of the rapture. A door opens, heaven opens up, and a voice says to all the saints on the earth, come up here And I'm going to show you what the future is going to be like from now on. And we have the rapture, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Revelation. You've seen the word churches here 19 times in three chapters. And then you have the door opens in heaven and people are caught up. You don't see the church again, not even mentioned until you come to chapter 19 And you see the saints coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 19. Now, turn to chapter 6. Beginning in Revelation chapter 6. I'm outlining the book for you, really. Revelation chapter 6, you have the beginning of the tribulation. The Lamb opens the seals. There are seven seals. And every time He opens a seal, He breaks a seal and judgment comes upon the earth. In other words, it's an assignment of judgment. And then after he opens the seals, there are seven trumpets that sound, and each trumpet introduces judgment on the earth. And then there are seven bowls of wrath, and those seven bowls are poured out upon the earth, and each of them is a judgment. Three times seven, 21, 21 separate judgments upon the earth, As God pours out His wrath upon a wicked world that has turned against Him in hostility, they hate Him. They want to pull Him out of the sky and and, and destroy Him if they could. That's chapter 6, and I've taken you all the way down through 19. And the final event is in chapter 19, or, or the final event of this period. And here you see the nations gather together and form a great military force, the center of which is in Israel. And that force seeks literally to bring war against God and everything that he represents. The nations gather to war against God. It's Armageddon. That's where you find the battle of Armageddon in the Bible. And then Christ will return. And the saints will be with him, and all of them will come as the armies of heaven. Let's just look at a brief part of it. Chapter 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven open again, this time though, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was faithful, capital F, true, capital T, deity, Jesus And in righteousness he will judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is symbolic language, of course. On his head are many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed with linen white and clean. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he will smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture, his clothing, and on his thigh written a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you know what? Not one shot will be fired. Not one sword will, sword will be unsheathed. Jesus Christ will speak. That's all. The Word of God. He will speak, and it's over for the wicked. Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. The Antichrist will be destroyed. At the end of the chapter, they're both thrown into hell. In verse 20 there. I won't read it for the sake of time. Now, what's the purpose? That's the worst period in all the history. All those judgments of God come down upon man. They're paying for their wickedness against him. God doesn't pay off on Friday. He pays off when he gets ready to pay off. The purpose of the rapture is what? Is to keep you and me out of the tribulation period. Does that make sense? He didn't want to take you and me, his blood-washed, redeemed people that have trusted him. We're not better than other people. It's just that we trusted him. We put our faith in him. And he takes us out before that horrible time we call the Great Tribulation. Don't look for the sake of time. But 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, write it down. He has delivered us from the wrath to come, writing to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, God hath not appointed us to wrath. Revelation 3.10, writing to the church at Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of temptation or of adversity or of punishment, if you will. So what is the purpose of the tribulation? To destroy Satan and his antichrist system, his global empire that he has set up, that we're seeing, I think, begin... The beginnings of it right now With this globalism emphasis The purpose of the tribulation Is to rescue the nation of Israel From extinction Are you not seeing things That would make you think The whole world would just like To destroy Israel And the purpose of it Is to punish the evil Of the last generation of earth dwellers Who totally rebel against God And even though Listen here Even in the tribulation, there's going to be the gospel and there's going to be revival. In fact, I believe the greatest revival in all of recorded history is yet to happen, not now, in the tribulation period. You know what God's going to do? There's earth dwellers that have been so wicked and hated him, and we're seeing those trends building, I believe, today. You know what God's going to do? He's going to send an angel who's going to preach the gospel through the whole world. In the book of Revelation, it tells you about it. He's going to send two witnesses who are going to stand in Jerusalem and preach the gospel on television to the whole world because it says the whole world's going to see them. People are going to gnash their teeth on them and kill them. They're going to lay on the street for three days and then resurrect. God's going to take them back to heaven all to get people to believe the gospel. He is going to send out 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to go through the whole world preaching the gospel of Christ. All of that is why, uh, uh, even in the midst of this wicked, horrible time, The gospel of God's grace is going to go forward. And I predict with the population we have in the world today, more people will be saved in the tribulation than have been saved since all of the beginning of history because the population is here to support it. So even in the tribulation, we're not without hope. There's good news. The good news is that while we're lost and helpless to save ourselves, God sent His Son into the world because He loves us. Every one of us, everyone in this building, everyone watching on television, everyone that lives on this planet, God loves them. You say, How could He do that? Because He's God, He's infinite, He has all power. He knows even the number of hairs on our head. So He knows us, and He loves us in spite of our sins. And He's already sent His Son to the cross. And your sins have already been paid for, the sins of the world. We don't believe in double jeopardy. If God, if Christ on the cross paid for my sins, I don't have to go through the tribulation period and experience the wrath of God. He's not going to punish his bride, and we're his bride. And he loves you, and if you've never been saved, If you've never come to the cross and truly been born again, today is your day of opportunity. You can come right now as I ask you to bow your head. And I give to you an invitation to come and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior.